This Sunday, we are reading Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Let's turn there. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Well, let's pray. Let's pray. Almighty Father, as we consider the news that the tomb is empty, uh, we do so in a world that is reeling and rocking, and we are weary, and many of us are discouraged. Some are confused, and if we're honest, many of us lack hope. We pray today that the news of the empty tomb would meet us right where we are, that it might strengthen us, that it might sustain us, and that it might fill us with hope that abounds. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, hey, uh, it's really good uh, to be with you this morning, whether you're joining us online or you're here in service. Uh, it's particularly fun to have so many kids here this morning. It really is. I just want to let you know, kids, uh, there's a time coming up at the end of the service where I'm really going to need your help, okay? So just stay ready, keeping the candy in the bags, whatever you need to do, but it's coming. Um, the rest of you, and everybody actually, um, not long ago I was, I was listening to another pastor and he, he made this comment. He said, the most important commodity in the Christian life is faith. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, there's two times in the Gospels where people make Jesus marvel. Only two times. One time, Jesus goes to his hometown, and he's there. And Jesus marvels at their unbelief. The second time, a Roman centurion comes up to Jesus, and his daughter's sick, and he says, Jesus, will you come with me? Or excuse me, Jesus, Jesus will you heal him? And, and, and Jesus says, yeah, I'll come with you. And, and, and the Roman centurion says, you don't need to come with me. Just say the word. And Jesus marveled at this man's faith. Faith is more important than your 401k. That faith is more important than your health. Uh, faith is more important than your relationship status. Faith is more important than just fill in the blank, whatever it is. It's the most important thing in the Christian life. And this morning, uh, this passage tells us three things about Easter and faith. It tells us that faith is historical, that this faith is doctrinal, and this faith is personal. Let's begin looking at this faith that is historical. In verse 9, it talks about making this confession that God raised him from the dead. Now notice, this is not a claim to ethics. This is not a claim to philosophy. This is a claim about an event in history. That's really unique. You know, I'd imagine if you talk to the average Madisonian on the street 
and you told them, hey, you know, I'm a Christian, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, I think you get at least two responses. The first would be, uh, one would be, I think you might be a little naive. That'd be one. Maybe that's putting that politely. Uh, But the second would be this. Well, that's good for you. I'm glad you found something that works for you. What's interesting is the Apostle Paul, he's writing another letter in 1 Corinthians. He, He says this about the resurrection in faith. He says this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Isn't that remarkable? In other words, the claim is this, that there's something that has happened and it's true. It actually corresponds to reality. Because if it doesn't, when he says it's futile, it means it's empty or it's useless. It doesn't matter. It doesn't do you any good. So, I know some of you this morning... Maybe you lost a bet. Maybe you uh, are with some family that always go to a service or stream online at some point. And, you know, this idea of believing in a bodily resurrection, it sounds, I don't know, maybe, maybe nice, but could somebody really believe that? Well, let me share with you two things I most commonly hear when I talk to people about these things that make them skeptical. And the first is this, is that, you know, the news about a resurrection, it's, it's really just a legend. You know, it was, it was written later on down the line when there wasn't people around, and it just kind of evolved into this nice little story. But I want to tell you something. When the Apostle Paul was writing, just 15 to 20 years after the events of Jesus being crucified, He wrote this. He said, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And and here's the point. That is written too early for it to be a legend. Do you understand that? Paul says, you can go talk to these people. Most of them are still alive. They can verify that they saw Jesus risen. It's, it's too early to be a legend. The second thing I often hear is, is this. You know, we're modern people, right? We, we have science, we have reason, and people back then, uh, they were just, you know, they believed in things like that. They're a little bit more susceptible, a little more gullible, but we're a little bit more progressive. And here's the deal. Actually, in one sense, you're not far off. They, they, in one sense, did believe in the supernatural more. But where you're wrong is this, is they had just as many reasons to be skeptical about the resurrection. In fact, maybe even more. Let me give you three reasons why. Um, N.T. Wright, in his book, Surprised by Hope, he points out that there were two dominant kind of worldviews of that day. And the first worldview was the Greco-Roman worldview, which, if you know Plato or anything like that, was basically this, the body is bad, the spirit's good. In fact, 
For a Greco-Roman, you know, salvation in any, in any one sense would be escape from the body. So when the news comes that Jesus has risen from the dead and he's actually bodily risen, there is no, that makes no sense. That's not even good news for them because of the, their belief system. But the second is the Jewish expectation. Many of the Jews believed in a bodily resurrection, but that was at the end of time. And that was for all people, a bodily resurrection. But one man in the middle of history, they had no categories for that. Do you understand what that means? That means if you were Greco-Roman or you were Jewish, the news of a resurrection were completely outside of the scope of what you would normally believe. Plausibility. And listen, if you read through the gospel accounts, you'll notice, you know, Jesus has told disciples multiple times, I'm going to be risen. And you don't see them streaming to the tomb looking for him. In fact, all the gospel accounts, it's women that discover that Jesus has risen. Why? Because it wasn't even their categories. Let me give you one more. The one writing this letter to the Romans, Paul, he's a Jew. Listen, the Jews were the last person on the planet to believe that anyone should worship a man as the Son of God. And yet Paul in Romans 1 when he opens, he says, because of the resurrection, Jesus has been declared to be the Son of God. It's a claim to deity. And here's what you need to realize this morning. Although your reasons are not the same reasons they had, nevertheless, they had just as many reasons, if not more, to be skeptical of the resurrection. And guess what? the news of an empty tomb overwhelmed them. Do you understand that? Now listen, these reasons, let me tell you, these reasons are not, I'll put it this way, they can't make someone believe, but I will say this, if you're skeptical, could I ask you to humbly consider doubting your doubts? How about in a city like Madison, could I ask you to be, dare I say it, open-minded? When Paul writes is that Christ has been risen, it's a claim to a historic event. You need to wrestle with it. But secondly, it's doctrinal. In other words, it means something. Like something happened. It, 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 it actually matters. It did something. Imagine for a moment uh, that you were convicted of a crime and you were brought before the court and all the evidence was brought in and it was clear you had done it, you were guilty, there is no way out of it. And then on the day in which the verdict is going to be declared, you're going to be sentenced, the judge comes forward and says this, says, you're righteous, you're pardoned. How would you feel in that moment? What would your response be? There are actually two words in Romans 10, 9, 10, they actually say, because of someone's faith in Christ and the resurrection, 
This is actually the picture of what happens in their relationship to God. Two words, justified and saved. There's, um, the last weeks we've been going through the book of Romans, and I'll just say this, Romans 1 and 2, even the first part of 3, we're going to be there next week, it's basically Paul making a case that whether you're religious or non-religious, no matter where you're coming from, you're guilty. <laughs> Thanks, Pastor. It's great. Thanks for making me feel guilty this morning. But let, let me, this is, uh, in one sense, this is, Paul's trying to say, this is your condition. Um, in Romans 1, Paul says to the non-religious, Romans 1.25, he says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. In other words, Paul says this, you, you've traded God in for something else. You've built your identity, your significance, your security, your satisfaction on things in creation when you're actually built and created to do that in God. But then... You might think at this point, well, I guess I should just be more religious then. Get some morals, get some ethics. But then in chapter 2, Paul begins this way. We were there last week, Casey was. He says, he says this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Paul's basically saying this, the problem is far too deep to just give you some morals and rules. In fact, You'll notice in Romans 2, it's pretty clear at this point that because of these morals and ethics and rules, it actually makes you self-righteous. It can make people very self-righteous. And Paul says there's got to be something more. So how can God just pardon and declare righteous guilty people? Well, that's that's the cross. This news that Jesus, the innocent one, would take our place. And here's what's amazing about the resurrection. That this is, this is what's, how it's tied to the cross. It means this. Because Christ has been raised, it means this. That God has placed his stamp of approval on his sacrifice. It means he's been accepted. It means it really is finished. Listen, if he's still in the tomb, there is no hope. But the resurrection means because he's accepted, because his sacrifice has been accepted on behalf of sinners, it means that you can be as well. It means you can be pardoned. It means you can be declared righteous, having fulfilled the law. So, listen, this faith is not merely a faith in an event. It's a faith that finds its meaning in the sacrificial death of Christ. And the resurrection is the assurance that a door has opened in the cosmos to come back to God. But lastly, it's, it's a faith that's personal. Let me read Romans 10, 9, 10 in its entirety one more time. Listen to it. It says this, Because if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Notice how this faith, Paul ties it to what one says and then to the very heart of a person. Notice what that means. In one sense, it's not just merely some words you say. 
right? It's not just merely a, a mental ascent, say these magical words, but it, it actually needs to, to hit you here. But also notice, it's, it's simple. I mean, think about this. It's not complex. It's, it's not you doing something, really. It's you relying. And this is, this is what's so remarkable about this passage is because Paul's making this claim, it's not about your works, it's about faith. And then think about that. For most of us, we spend our entire lives achieving. You know, in our, my eldest just turned 15, that's unbelievable to me, and already in our house we're, we're talking about I don't know, GPAs and college acceptance, right? Because there's a dynamic where you want to get this and that so you can be accepted, right? That's not a bad thing. Or think about, for many of you, it's, it's the job you want or the job you have or the promotion you want, the promotion you, you want to get, right? You understand. It's, it means you got to put in your time. You, gotta go, you have to show faithfulness. You have to demonstrate that, that you can do it. And then you get the job or then you get the promotion, it's about what you do. Or just think about relationally. I mean, to be honest, right, our relationships, it's I'll come halfway, you come halfway, you know? And then we'll be good. But if I go 75% and you only come 25, well, then we all know what, what needs to happen here. You need to come a little bit more, right? It's oftentimes, it, it's, it's mixed like that. But notice here, this is something you receive. This is not something you achieve. This is simple reliance, simple trust on what God has done. So let me just address where where a few of you might be here this morning or watching. Um, If you're curious or skeptical of this, let me ask you, what's holding you back? Maybe it is the historicity of this event. Maybe it seems too unbelievable, or maybe it's the doctrinal, maybe it's what it says about you and about God and who He is, but can I just submit to you today, let me ask you to consider taking a season of your life and giving yourself to a serious exploration of the Christian faith. You know, maybe um, it just means in the coming weeks as we continue through the book of Romans, really getting to the depth of the doctrine of this gospel, what it is, who we are, what God has done, and what it offers. I mean, it is rich. It means coming weekly and just sitting and listening and wrestling with what God's Word says about this. Or maybe it's the friend or family member that invited you that you think is completely crazy, but maybe it's just simply asking the question, hey, how did you get here? (laughs) How did you come to believe in this? Or maybe it's taking a dive into one of our city groups and just watching some people try to work this out in their life. Not perfectly, but imperfectly. Let me invite you to consider this. I also think for some of you this morning, maybe you're here and it's like, I don't know if I believe. You know, I um, I remember when I was in college, and I was wrestling with this personally. I'd grown up in the church. Uh, I was involved in the ministry. And I remember going to one of my mentors. And um, I was like, you know, I can't, 
I don't know, I can't tell you the date, time, I can't tell you the moment that I placed my trust in this thing, and I, I mean, what does that say about me? And I remember at that moment, he just said this, well, well, why not just place a stake in the ground today? You know, I mean, in one sense, he, he was like, do you understand you need a Savior? Yeah. Do you, do you believe this happened? Yeah. Well, then just say yes today. It's simple. Yeah, it's absolutely profound. It will change your life from the inside out. Listen, um, I know many of you this morning, you've come to celebrate this event because you have trusted. And you've probably been sitting here going the whole time, Pastor, are you ever going to talk to me? Um, well, here you go. Here it is. What does this mean for you and for me? Uh, Paul, in Romans 8, is reflecting on the hope of the death of Christ and the resurrection. He's, he's trying to put it into terms, what does this mean for my life? And listen to what he writes in chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. He says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's amazing to me because Paul is just doing this run-on sentence. He's trying to come up with every possible way that something could separate us from God. And he begins it with a rhetorical question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer, nothing. And listen, if you think that is just for the moment you die, it is for that day. But let me tell you what, that is hope for tomorrow. Like wherever your feet land at 8 a.m. in the morning, do you understand something? I mean, just think for a moment, this last year, I guarantee you, because of the pandemic, there's not one person here who has not had one of their relationships, be it family or friend, that has not been strained, right? It's been such a divisive year. Relationships have shifted. The questions are, will you love me? Will I love you? Are there across the board? And do you know what God says in the resurrection? Nothing will ever change. Nothing can separate you from me because I love you. That, that provides hope for the weary, does it not? That provides encouragement for, dis, for, for the discouraged, does it not? That is what is yours in the resurrection. Let's pray.
God of hope, would you fill us with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of your Spirit, we may abound in hope. We give you thanks for this news of the empty tomb. And we pray that this news would continue to change us moment by moment and day by day. We ask this all in your name. Amen.